Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. Broadcasting now from Los Altos, California. This is Sean Caranese, Level 2 from Sacramento. In the room with me. Hello, and as usual, I'm Ricky Hayashi. I'm getting ready for my marathon tomorrow, half marathon. But stop by, uh, and we are with... Toby Elliott, Level 5 Judge. Um, he's very impressed that Ricky is doing a half marathon tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty impressed also and feeling very, very guilty about my gut right now. Everybody suck it in quick. Right. <laughs> I was thinking about this on the drive over, like where I would put this in terms of accomplishments. It's like this or level three interview. They're pretty close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I'm we needed a more physical component to level three. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You must actually defeat a Herloon Minotaur or oh, something of that nature. If that, that Herloon Minotaur is being played by Sheldon, then no one will ever pass. <laughs> Well, that is uh, maybe one of the good descriptions of the sort of effort that gets into go- getting up to level five, I think. And uh, you're only one of four in the world right now. Yep. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your focus as a level five has been and where you'd like to see the program go? So my focus as a level five, as everybody pretty much knows, is I'm the policy guy. Um, anybody who has issues with the penalties, the anything in the IPG, the MTR... And occasionally, the florals, they'll come to me and they'll ask me to consider doing something or say, I have a problem with this, mm-hmm. or why haven't you thought about this, or just you know yell at me for something. Right, um, right. So that's, that's been my main role. <laughs> and it looks like that's been very relevant uh, in the recent past year with the new publication of the IPG. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the process that it goes through to get a new one published and, and why you go through that process and... and- so, so the IPG is a, it's a quarterly document, uh, just like all of the magic documents. We try to sync it up with comprehensive rules changes, with MTR changes. Um, and really, that's literally what happens is people come to me and they say, why haven't you done this? And mm-hmm. I say, I don't know. Why haven't we done that? And then I will, depending on which part of the policy it is, for example, if somebody has a question about communication policy, I'll ask Nick Sefton to evaluate it because he's our communications expert um, if it involves internal wizard policies, obviously it goes to Andy or to Scott Larrabee, the pro tour tournament manager for his evaluation. Mm-hmm. And then either I, or if they've presented something fairly detailed in the first place, uh, written wise, we'll write something up. Um, it then will get floated to, there's a level three policy committee, which is just a team of level three judges who talk about policy, raise issues. Um, we vet things with them. Um, the level four judges will usually have a quick sit at the end I'll say this is what I believe we should be doing in this penalty guide in this IPG, and they'll say yay or nay. And, you know, sometimes they'll pull stuff out or we'll defer stuff till the next one. There's, you know, since we're doing quarterly, we can afford the luxury of not having to get everything in at once because if we get everything at once, you know, won't be only two years before we update again. Right? No, no need anymore because it's a quarterly document. We can just say, well, that's not fully baked, or we want more time to study that issue. Let's push that to June. Okay. So, I mean, to give you an example from this one, the most public case in the uh, April IPG is the change in insufficient from insufficient randomization to insufficient shuffling. Right. There were, there were two impetuses for that. And the first one, I can't remember who suggested it might have been Scott Marshall suggested insufficient shuffling because the idea was that a lot of judges were very focused on, well, is this deck random? And the answer is you have no idea if this deck is random. The, right. the, by definition, randomness means anything is possible. I mean, the, right. deck, the deck can be exactly ordered alphabetically by, you know, title of card, and that is technically random. Now, you know, judges are looking for land, spell, spell, or something. 
it is randomly possible. What we want to focus on is the actual action taken, which right. is that's the thing. The player are they shuffling? Control. You know, are they making the effort to be random? Um, obviously, this this allows for a certain level of you know, if if you crack a fetch land, pick up your deck, the bottom card is the, the forest you're looking for. You put it into play, and you do four or five overhand shuffles. That's probably sufficiently random. Whereas if you've had to search your entire deck for gifts given, gifts ungiven, and have pulled out four cards and then put one back and then pulled out another card. That's going to require a good bit more shuffling. So it allows us to evaluate, hey, yes, um, he made an appropriate effort, rather than say, is this deck appropriately random, which has no actual meaning. Mm-hmm. And the second one actually happened very quickly. Jared Silva at Pro Tour San Diego said, you know, not only there's two issues with the fact that this penalty is a game loss. The first one is the opponent is supposed to be shuffling once you have finished. So if the opponent fulfills their part of the bargain, there's no actual advantage here. Theoretically, I could stack my deck like exactly <laughs> as I wanted it, hand it to my opponent. As long as he does his job. And if he does his job, right. everything is perfectly good. Now, obviously, opponents, you know, especially at the lower levels, will tend to just cut or you know, do a brief shuffling. So we, don't, we obviously aren't going to... You know, it actually has been floated in policy before. Why don't we just say... You don't have to do anything. It's the opponent's responsibility to shuffle your deck. And Whoa. <laughs> yeah, we didn't do that because we said we want people to understand that this is an important thing and you, you need to do that. And plus, we didn't want like advanced or competitive players to be taking advantage of new players and things who didn't realize that there was this necessity. And his second observation was that by making a game loss, we, judges were having a really hard time jumping on it. To, even as a preventative measure, because um, you're going to ruin somebody's you're gonna, it, it, From a customer service standpoint, you're you're really making somebody's day miserable. They, they may it's possible they really were inadequately shuffling. It's possible that it was borderline, and they just didn't realize. And judges were very reluctant to jump in and educate, right. which meant between these two things, Jared felt well, this really should be a warning because mm-hmm. there's not any really serious potential for somebody to abuse it if everybody's working correctly. And this will actually encourage judges to really focus on educating players and telling them, of course, if you warn somebody for it and then they continue to do it, I don't think any judge is going to have problems upgrading at that point. That's, you know, we told you, you know, you, you aren't doing it right and you better start doing it right. Now, the next question with that is that because, you know, you have a large event with a number of different judges, Mm -hmm. um, one judge can say, well, you know, I'm going to give you this warning. Mm -hmm. Have you received it before? Mm -hmm. And you have the potential to upgrade there so that, if somebody's actually willing to give the warning, you kind of cross that threshold, make it easier for them to cross that threshold to give the warning. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you may end up actually with more game losses because more people are getting upgraded because it's easier for a judge to make that. I don't think that will be an issue. I believe in 99% of the cases, obviously there's going to be some where somebody's just either really pushing the competitive edge or just mm-hmm. genuinely isn't terribly clueful about shuffling. Nah. Those are, those are going to happen. But for the most part, if you warn a player, that they're not sufficiently randomizing, it's going to be at the front of their mind every time they randomize for the rest of the tournament. And they're going to go to the other extreme. Yes, I think they'll, they'll over-randomize, especially when most players, especially at like the PTQ levels and higher, know that penalties get upgraded. So if I've had a warning for insufficient shuffling, I'm going to be making darn sure that I'm sufficiently shuffling. Okay. But So the point is that this literally happened because Jared Silva approached me and actually asked me to go out to lunch with him at San Diego, which was what, two weeks before the IPG was due, and said, look, this is, I really think we should do this. Did, and he, did he buy you lunch? No. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Jared, you owe me lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it had been, been in one if week you're gonna, you bought me lunch. If you're going to propose policy change, that seems like the least 
Oh, that's the least you, you right? I endorse this. <laughs> no, but the point is that, you know, Jared, it, it could have been anybody. Yeah. Um, and in and fact, I think this came about because of the incident at Dallas, the Star sure. City Open in Dallas, where Kevin Binswanger had mm-hmm. to give a game loss in the top eight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was absolutely correct to do so, yeah. but Jared's point was was quite valid, and in the future, we, we think, yeah, sure, that's something we can adjust and see how it goes. Now, obviously... If we suddenly have this incredible rash of people trying to take advantage of it, we will reverse it. We have reversed things in the past when we haven't been happy with them. What's an example of that? Um, now you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I can cut this part out if you can't come up with an example. No, I'm, I'm just trying to think. It's been a while. I mean, what actually what's been a very interesting progression is, for example, insufficient randomization used to be a match loss. Okay. Back three years ago or so. Before we, we There was a sort of very radical break of the IPG back in February of... 09 Puerto Geneva. No, 08. Okay. That was when we had the initial really big... There were lots of changes in there. There were we, we, we sort of focused on the scope of penalties. So, for example, failing to randomize only has a scope within the game. You haven't affected right. the match. Whereas, say, something like outside assistance, which, you know, we kept the match loss for a long, long, long time. Right. Well, it was disqualification for a long time. But um, that has match-level scope because they've now helped you with something that might also help you next game. And sure, in fact, right. the, the, the most problematic outside assistances we have are the ones where somebody points out strategy, and then the guy goes on and wins games two and three because he now know that, knows that strategy. Yeah, we, and, I, I've had that exact issue with OA before. And, so, and yeah. so, so that it's a Definitely. scope issue. So insufficiently randomizing something or insufficiently shuffling only affects the game you're in. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, we can't always just say that because it's like it's like cops giving speeding tickets they don't give you a speeding ticket because you just happen to speed and that's the only time you've ever and sped. that's the only time you've ever right. they, they build into it the fact that if you sped the odds are they haven't caught you 35 times before that right um and so it's not like there's a guaranteed one-to-one correspondence with the scope of a penalty and the severity of the penalty and the scope of the infraction mm-hmm. but a lot of the time there is well, let's talk about a couple of the other changes in, in a little bit more depth. Mm-hmm. And one I wanted to talk about um, was the co-responsibility now for game players that are ah, um, yes. that basically if if you control how and I and I miss and I forget to draw, it's both of us. This was actually a corner or mis triggered in the case of how and I. This was a corner policy we ran and hid from for a long time because we did yeah, not did. have we didn't have good answers. Um, I the answer we have, I think, is the best we can have, but it, it's a really problematic case. And the more you sort of poke at it, the more problematic it becomes. So, for example, the, the canonical example is I path to exile one of your guys, and you put it in the graveyard. Right. Who's at fault? Well, you didn't resolve my spell correctly. So Correct. I, it's my spell, so I should be telling you how to resolve it correctly. But it's your card and your actions. That is, in fact, both arguments. And right. those are inc- both incredibly painful arguments, because... We can confound it. Path to Exile could be in Japanese. Right. At which point, I have no idea what Path to Exile does. You point the card at my creature and say, Path it. Okay, it goes in the graveyard, I guess. Mm. You know, <laughs> have I done anything wrong at that point? I Hard to say. Um, technically, you know, I should probably know what Path to Exile does, but I don't have an English version. I should be calling a judge to get Oracle text, but what are the odds I'm going to do that? You're just going to follow the guy's lead, and he's just pointed Path at your guy. It's got a picture of a you know lion disappearing. It <laughs> probably kills my guy. Okay, it's in the graveyard. So it, it's very very hard. We because a player who's played path and the other guy has done it wrong feels like oh I've just been totally wronged because he did it. I didn't do anything. I just played the spell absolutely correctly. Right. Didn't do anything wrong. The other guy's like he didn't tell me what it was supposed to do. So 
there was this deep problem. And, you know, the other the other classic scenario is like you know me failing to draw off your howling mine. Mm-hmm. It's the same problem. It's actually worse because. I can't tell until you've taken an action that shows me that you didn't draw off the Howling Mine. Right. So if I just draw for my turn, you don't even have any way to know that I've done anything wrong until I you know, try to do something else. Sure. So in these cases, we're like, you know, well, there is no really good answer here. But what we eventually said was, okay, well, if it's a game rule violation, maybe they just both get it. And that way they're not... Nobody's incentive. A lot of the things are sort of behavioral modification, trying to just encourage people to do the right thing. In this case, we're just encouraging both players to do the right thing. The guy who's playing the spell to make sure that the spells are resolved correctly. The guy who's actually doing the actions to make sure he's taking the actions correctly. Mm-hmm. So by giving them both the penalty, we're, we're saying, yeah, you both need to be more careful about this. So along those lines, when you have um, all these GRVs, mm-hmm. you've basically expanded the number of opportunities where a person would get a failure to maintain game state in the past. Now they're getting a GRV. Mm-hmm. Um, when those start to pile up, you get upgrades into game losses and, and worse things. Is that intentional in here that you have more opportunities for that upgrade path to be dinged on? Or I, I don't think intentional is the right word. It's 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 a side effect. I think it's actually it's a side effect that we spend a lot of time worrying about, but in reality, isn't going to change a lot. There aren't that many times where we're going to be handing out this particular infraction to both players. Um, mm-hmm. It'll happen occasionally, but. In general, you look at the vast, vast majority of GRVs, and somebody does something wrong, or does something stupid, and okay. so you know we're, we're going to run around kind of panicked for a little while, and then we're going to settle down and realize it added two warnings to a tournament. Nobody got upgraded, anything like that. Um, it's a consequence rather than something that was intentional. Uh, we recognize that it does produce a slightly higher chance of some upgrades, but again, you, you've got three opportunities, but after the first one, you should be being pretty careful. Right. About you know what your what your their opportunities is the wrong word. You have three, <laughs> let's say three strikes. So sure. you know after strike one, most people are going to pay more attention to that next pitch. Well, and the thing that I'm more curious about is that you have so many different ways that you can obtain a GRV mm-hmm. that uh, there there used to be this sort of uh, misunderstanding among a lot of judges. I think that well, if we have you know if you get the same thing, mm-hmm. if you're doing the same thing with the same cards, if you make, miss two dark confidant triggers, mm-hmm. but then miss a howling mind trigger, mm-hmm. those are somehow on a different path that I've seen interpreted or misinterpreted that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that you have basically all of these things under the one umbrella of GRV, um, it, it seems to kind of coalesce more. But I, I can understand also you were just encouraging better communication between players at the same time. We've done a lot of research on tournaments. Ooh. Research. Mm, we have actually. We, we've gone into Opus and we've seen how often do players get three warnings. And for our listeners, what's Opus? Oh, sorry. Opus is sort of this magical internal database that Wizards has that basically all these tournaments that you're playing mm-hmm. go up into this one single central area. And obviously, it sits next to Gleenax and right. does all the brain in a jar things for the tournaments. It calculates your ratings, it keeps track of players' warning histories, it keeps track of judge levels. It really does everything that. Most players, it, it it knows how many player rewards you're getting. Okay, so um, it's important. It's an important <laughs> piece of software. Players should care about Opus. Yes, right. and so it's organized. It. I think it's organized play information system, something like that. Okay. But um, so we actually went into Opus and we said, well, how many warnings are people getting in tournaments? And it is incredibly rare for someone to get three warnings in a tournament. Okay, um, it's it happens occasionally. I had <laughs> the World Championships in Memphis. I had a player with. Four warnings by the end of round two. 
well, he's having just a bad time all around that. Well, he, was, he was tremendously cheerful. He was obviously a really nice guy, but a very, very sloppy magic player. Gotcha. He stayed in the tournament, though. He, he tightened it up enough and managed to make it wow. through. I, I don't know if he went the whole way through, but he played through however many rounds he decided to play and did not. He stayed in the tournament, which was a huge relief. Mm-hmm. But, um, yes, that was, that was kind of scary. Round, round two, and I'm already like, dude. On the edge of the night. <laughs> you really, right. like, you really need to tighten up. What deck was he playing? I don't even remember. <laughs> well, I think you've answered a lot about the IPG. We have a couple mm-hmm. other other major changes that have happened in this one. Okay. Um, if you if you wanted to talk about those, we can. Um, I think they're probably not as as severe as uh, you know. We're not we're not getting into the it's the you know the failure to reveal is the last mm-hmm. one that you guys really put in the appendix. And there's a couple others that Ricky talked about in our last episode, but it's it's mostly the the stuff that mm-hmm. you know. We've talked about a lot of the big changes there and the philosophy behind them. Um, I wanted to kind of get into the application of some stuff, though. And, okay. and that really gets into our questions from our listeners. Ooh. Ooh. You have listeners? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, has it been recorded? At least six, right? Uh, we have... Oh, at least six fans. At least six fans, yeah. Well, I'd like Actually, a we're special shout-out to fan number four. <laughs> oh, I don't know who that, that is, actually. Do you know the order no, in which... I don't. Oh. No, my mom is not a fan. <laughs> well, one of the things that we do have a Facebook group, so if you're on Facebook, you can find us just by searching for JudgeCast. Um, instead of just having to friend either oh, Ricky yeah. or me, you can mm-hmm. actually friend or become a fan of the show there. Um, saves you having to become a friend of Ricky. Right. Well, it also saves us from like rejecting you if we don't know you yeah, and you're like, enough. I listen to you guys. Did you reject people? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I, haven't, no I, I haven't rejected I, a whole bunch of people, but I, I have like been like, well, who's this person? They're friends with like... You know Evan Irwin, but I don't know. Yeah. You know, no, if, I, I, if, they, if they have Evan, like Luis, and BDM, I'll usually accept them. <laughs> I, I, I just I, want to be in that company, don't you? I don't reject them, but I have to because I only go to I only go to Facebook periodically, and mm-hmm. I have this long, long line of people who've been pending friend requests forever, and I just like at some point I'll figure out who you are, and then I'll figure out <laughs> what I want to do. But. Okay, well, we have a, a question here uh, from Brendan Hurst. And Brendan, let's see, does not tell us where he's from. Um, he's got a question, though, about large numbers. That is that... Large numbers. Now, when we get into a loop in Magic where, you know, you have uh, some... The, the elf, elf decks do this all the time where mm-hmm. you've got some loop that you can create where you'll get an arbitrarily large number of tokens, arbitrarily large amount of life. Yep. And you can keep track of that by simply saying, well, this is the number, and you know, let's write down a million on a piece of paper, and I've got a million elf tokens here. And usually the game ends within a couple turns of that happening anyway. Usually it ends right there because you forgot you played Glimpse of Nature. <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> and then you have to draw a million cards. Right, oh, right. No. I, I've done that before with Umbra Mantle and uh, the, the guy that taps for, you know... Ruffles. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Basically thinking, oh, I'll do that, and before the mana burn rules, I was dead very, very quickly. <laughs> Um, so okay, so so you get into that with the choices that players are making to make a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. But he's actually got this. Is, this may sound like a corner case, but he's got basically <laughs> a situation where you, the game starts creating these very large numbers of things, but they're not arbitrary. They're actually large numbers of things. Basically, when you get uh, copies of doubling season, opalescence, followed footsteps. Yeah, there's an insane one you can right. do with um, a couple of steel walls and a wirefly hive where you're. Percentage chance of winning slowly converges on a number. Right. But, yeah, because you're flipping a coin and 
You have, to, oh. you have to generate a certain number of wireflies in order not to lose. But of course, when you generate, when you miss a coin flip, you go back to the beginning. It's it's insane. Yes, there are some right. weird ones. So so basically, this is you're coming up with you know first first time you get an upkeep, it's you get mm-hmm. you know one token copy of doubling season. Mm-hmm. Well, now you get you know three token copies. Yep. Then it's eleven. Then close to five thousand. Basically, shouldn't it always mm-hmm. be a power of two? Well, the thing is that you're. You have it's two to the five thousand power. It's oh, yeah. it's it's an exponential function, not just oh, not plus just the original, right? Exactly. Okay. So you you get this crazily large number of things. If the game's asking you to actually actually represent this somehow, where you can only basically keep track of it in some sort of recursive notation, <laughs> is that okay? If your opponent can't understand that math. Is this uh, Brendan? Is it? Yeah. All right, Brendan. Here's my advice in this situation. Advice in this situation. Just win already. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the simple answer. I mean, yes, you might have to explain the opponent. This is this is you know a recursive function. Um, mm-hmm. at, at a certain point, you just say, "I now have infinite doubling seasons." Sure. Um, what do you plan? Why, like, why make, you make a token with power? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at some point. Yeah, at this point, there, there is like for to give you, to give you sort of. Reduced example. After a while, people pile on counters on the scoot mob, uh-huh. and then after a while, it's like if it hits us, yeah, 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 whatever. It's a miss. <laughs> it's a miss. You're hitting me once a turn. I'm jumping, and if you hit, if you get through to me, it's over. You're way past my life total. I'm not gaining. I'm not okay. playing the life deck or anything. Uh, yeah, eventually you just start to say, I don't know. There's some enormous number on the battlefield, and if it actually matters how many there are, if they play fracturing gus or something, right? Well, now you have an enormous amount of life. It's, okay. It's, and really, that's that's sort of the thing we were getting into is that you know basically as long as my opponent can figure out, as long as it's okay for my opponent to say, well, I need to deal scattershot. One, mm-hmm. I've got some infinite combo with scattershot, so I will you know I want to deal one damage and lethal damage to each of those tokens. Mm-hmm. You need to do that by say it's legal for them to say, well, however many you have, that's sure. how much I do. Sure, and you don't have to have them say, well. Um, you know, I'll calculate that math out and then give you that number. And yeah, no, you, you know. just say I do one to every single one. Right. Um, the good news is that this has never, ever, ever actually <laughs> happened in a game. There has never been anybody who's managed to generate a huge number of something, and the other guy's got to say, "Well, I got to do my loop in order to kill all your gods." Right, right. That's uh, mm, everyone. So <laughs> do not take this as a challenge. <laughs> no, it used to actually happen a little bit because you used to have the life deck. Right, and then you used to have decks that were capable of dealing infinite damage, and in those mm-hmm. cases, you would just say, "Okay, I do this one more time than your life total." Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you, you can you don't have to do the mathematical calculation to figure out exactly you know, what order power of creatures you happen to have in play. So there's no there's no incentive for us to consider the possibility that you know we should just change magic as as a rules policy sort of thing and say, "Well, a million is the biggest number you can have of anything." Or there's no... You I, know, be, I believe there is be. a limit on MPGO. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Before it crashes? Yeah, I think, I think it, like, it stops like 256 or something. Okay. Or well, that's that's another piece of advice. Actually, yeah, something. I have yeah. seen like a picture yeah. of a bunch of squirrel tokens. and then <laughs> it, just, it just says, <laughs> I've had enough after a while. Um, but there's probably no real reason. You can just pick a large number. It, it is so rare that you deal with multiple loops in the same game. That, that don't end the game. That don't just end the game, yeah. The vast majority of them you're going to win within a turn anyway. Okay. Well, we have another question here. This is actually a pretty straightforward rules question, but um, you know, maybe there's more to it that an L5 can answer than, than Ricky and I All can. All right. I doubt um, it, but... 
So someone at the card shop I go to asked the question of, and this is uh, Mike, uh, I'm sorry, Mikkel, Mikkel, Michael, M-I-K-K-E-L, however you pronounce that, from Las Vegas. He says who, where he's from. That's awesome to know where you're from now. He asked the question, what would happen if you ride a replication and activated Manland? Would the creature still be a land after the player's turn is over? And does it count as a land when you replicate it? And if it's still a land, would it trigger landfall? Also, does the same thing work with clone? Okay. So it's like five questions all about what happens when I copy a man land that's been activated. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question, which I'm pretty sure you guys also know oh, the answer yeah. to, for sure, is copy effects. you are likely to be very unhappy. <laughs> um, you've got a bunch of land. They have, they're not activated. Um, they will trigger landfall. Yeah. A bunch of land just came into play. Yeah. Um, and same with clone. You just clone the guy. But now, if you have the ability to activate the activate the cloned land afterwards, right? We're both playing a blue white deck, and yeah. I clone your celestial colonnade. You now have a celestial colonnade. It's not currently a creature, but if you've got uh, was it white blue and two, right, or three, no, or three, whatever, whatever it is, yeah, yeah, you now have a celestial colonnade, and you can activate it. Okay, but it, it is a land. It is not going to make you a terribly happy camper mm-hmm. in most cases. Any judge who lived through Lorwyn Block <sighs> is familiar with this. Interaction because of the mutables mm-hmm. and mirror weave. Right. Yes. Right. <clears throat> Fast way to get out of combat. Okay. Um, this is actually a question about some of the policies on, on how pairings work. And this is outside, this goes outside the IPG and more into the MTR. Oh, okay. But hmm. um, top eights, uh-huh. how do we actually seed them first to eight, play each other, second to seventh play each other, or do we do that randomly for them? Depends. Okay. Um, the answer to that question is basically in constructed events, you are paired one eight two seven, etc. In limited events, we shuffle you around before the top eight, so you can't try to manipulate the standings for the draft. Okay. And seat you randomly for the draft. At that point, you play the guy directly across from you, who is by definition randomly determined. Okay. Okay. That's that's pretty awesome. Well. One more question here. Well, actually, we have more than just one more, but there's there's one here from Sam Stoddard, and he's actually been a writer over at, uh, I think, Star City at some yeah, point. Yeah. And uh, his question um, is that um, his opponent has, this is the Sylvan Library. Um, <laughs> his, his opponent has a Sylvan Library in play, mm-hmm. and before, uh, his, before his draw step when Sylvan Library would trigger, he decides, well, I'm going to play Brainstorm. He draws his three cards, puts two back on top, and moves the cards in his hand around a bit, and then says, well, now I'll crack a, fe- crack a fetch land to get rid of those two cards and shuffle some stuff up. After he's done resolving the fetch land, he goes to his draw step, and he you know, picks up three cards, one for his draw step and two for his Sylvan Library, and then puts two cards back, one of which may be identifiable as one of those three. The other one's just another card from his hand that he's, he's asserting is the card that he had with his Brainstorm. Who asked this question? Sam Stoddard. Uh, Sam, there are ninjas en route to your house at this point. (laughs) Please do not argue with them when they arrive. (laughs) So speaking of arguing, there was a large argument over this on IRC. Yeah. And it it was a big mess because, frankly, we couldn't figure it out. I don't think we reached any kind of consensus on this. Some people that said, don't do anything, you know, we can't tell... There's some people that wanted to give a GRV to the player for putting the wrong card back. Right. But then it was like, we can't prove that it was the wrong card. Sure. That they, you know, they, they may be telling the truth. So in that case, a game rule has not been violated. Mm-hmm. 
and then there was, I think Sean Doherty was saying, well, can we use the clause in, in the morph clause in GRV that just right. says game loss? Right. If, if no. for, for hidden, for <laughs> hidden information. Right. Because you should have just known that you're going to have the Sylvan library and you're going to have to keep it separate. Right. And yeah, that's, that's, but that brings up ugly corner cases with uh, <laughs> quick and donate. Right. All sorts of other <laughs> bad stuff. Yeah. So there's an answer for this. And the answer for this is the rules don't actually support this. Like literally, okay. the rules the rules don't handle this terribly well at all. Um, that's, that's 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 like I feel like I've just exited the matrix somehow. Yeah, the correct basically you have the correct procedure for this is if you are planning to brainstorm in your upkeep while you have Sylvan Library in play, you should call a judge over at that time because mm. you the only way to make this work within the structure of Magic as it is played is to have a judge available to verify that all the next subsequent <clears throat> steps are legal. Wow. Um, the, the, there's just, there is, I mean, the reason that everybody was tying themselves up in knots about this is there is actually no way to make this work in tournament magic short of setting those cards aside in some fashion. So that, you know, it's very clear what has been what basically get a judge if you're planning to brainstorm yeah. with Sylvan and play. Wow. Okay. Uh, okay. I mean, the only other way would be to maybe... The only other, turn the, only other, the cards you drew with brainstorm upside down. And yeah, you make them make them definitively different in some fashion because you know you're about to draw with Sylvan Library. I mean, you just have to use some common sense there. Once we've actually gotten to the point where the guy is claiming, you basically have to make the decision: do I believe him or not? Mm-hmm. And you know that's you make the decision, do what you want to do. That's good news is first of all, it's not likely to come up very often, and the other good news is that we trust you guys to do the best you can in the situation. Not every situation has to have a definitive answer. One, the reason that the IPG is worded as it is, is we, we're striving for consistency. We want tournaments everywhere around the world to be, look basically the same. You walk into sure. a tournament down in, you know, at superstars or at um, Gator games or something. You walk into a tournament in Kiev. They should be largely familiar to you. You should under, you should know what, what, what's going on what the judges are looking for, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In situations where somebody constructs this corner case where you have five cards in play in a lab situation and insane things are happening and, oh, my God, what does the judge do now? The answer is it doesn't matter. It's never coming up again. Right. So and, and it's not a con- there's no consistency issue involved here. You, if, if you get into a situation where everybody's brain has melted, <laughs> odds are pretty good, unless you like genuinely believe this is a new standard t- deck, which is going to generate this brain melting situation on a common basis. Yeah, somewhere I mean, we, else, we, right? we trust judges to use their common sense in situations like this that are not essentially repeatable situations. Okay, right. well, you should see the hoops that people jump through to make panglacial worm oh, yeah. that card. <laughs> well, I mean, the, you know, chromatic sphere. Yeah. caused immense... We, I, we had a guy locally who was absolutely convinced he had a tournament-level deck which would allow him to try, attempt to play a spell, crack the Chromatic Sphere, get the card, and if he didn't like it, would enable Reverse. him to rewind everything. <laughs> like he, could, he, he believed he should intentionally be able to do this to get a look at his top card. Because technically speaking, if you, you read the exact there. rules, the, right. you know, the game provides for how to do that. Of course... You're not. The game never intended to. That's why we now have chromatic. Um, chromatic. Where is Star. Sphere was original. Star was second. Yeah. Right. That's why we now have chromatic star because 
So it didn't work when when you when you have a draw that can happen in the middle of the resolution or the announcement of something else. Bad right. things happen. And we should just just clarify a little bit here that chromatic sphere is the one that says you know, you draw a card when, when mana ability when the mana ability is played. Yes, right. And chromatic star is the one that's a triggered ability when the star goes to the graveyard. So it just waits until after the spell right. you're currently announcing has been played before you get to draw the card. Right. And they would never. I, I, I mean, I don't want to say never, but wizards would never print a card like that anymore. Um, it caught them by surprise, obviously, too. There's, there's, when they're printing, you know, almost a thousand cards a year. So the, they have this templating team now who really know what they're doing and really understand the rules. Of course, the rules are improving all the time. They're becoming much more. Well, at this point, they're very concrete. But um, so the odds of a card like that slipping through nowadays are very slim. But we, obviously, we have to support these cards from older sets. And so you know, the simple answer is no. You can't if you're trying to crack this thing intentionally to get a look at your top card that is not in fact legal and we're not going to allow you to do it right right and the rules now say that you have to yeah i believe they actually the wrote a rule face down yes you, the card is kept face down until the announcement of the spell is complete yeah. precisely for to avoid the situation okay okay but at the time you know there was no no rule support so you know every once in a while you'll find a corner of the rules where it's just like there is no rule support for it and this is the brainstorm situation there is nothing. I mean, unless they want to write in a rule that says, you know, cards drawn this turn while Sylvan Library is in, in play must be kept separate. <laughs> yeah. Until then, we have to just make do with our best judgment. Okay. Well, I want to move on from those corner cases and talk a little bit more. This is just a, a question that I think we, we could normally answer pretty quickly, uh, but it does get into the, the line between strategic advice hmm. and um, and, oh and rules advice. And this question is from a guy named Alex Smithers. I was playing in a Zendikar Worldwake Worldwake draft the other night, and I had a twitch in my hand. Wait, ZWW? ZWW. Ooh. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I really, really want the chance at pulling a Jace out of there, I'm I guessing. guess. So I had a twitch in my hand, and while my opponent had a Zektar Shrine Expedition out with three counters on it. I was trying to think of a way to construct a situation in which he sacrifices the Shrine Expedition and I tap it down, but I wasn't sure how this would work with regards to the stack, etc. So, can he sacrifice it during the Declare Attacker's phase? He calls it a phase here. It's actually a step, but we can get into that. In which I can't use the stack to tap it, or does it need to be sacrificed before the Declare Attacker's phase, in which case I could tap it? Sadly, I can't ask my opponent, as this would spoil the whole thing. Hmm. Okay. So this is one of those things where if we're asked this question in the middle of a tournament saying, mm-hmm. I've got this in my hand, I want to, I, he's going to do that, I want to tap it down beforehand mm-hmm. before it comes in and you know, beats me up, we can't really answer that question so directly because it's giving strategic advice. It's saying, when should you play this spell if you want it to do this thing? So because we're not in a tournament right now, we can probably answer this question for Alex. <laughs> yes. So first of all, for those who are listening at home, after the effect has resolved and put the creature into play, there's absolutely an opportunity to tap down the creature before it can attack. Right. And yeah. it all has to happen in the beginning of combat. Yes. It can't happen in declare attackers because yes. in declare attackers, but you're already... But you don't move into declare attackers until both players have passed priority with an empty stack. Right. And of course, while the shrine's on the stack, that hasn't happened. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like there could be one of two misunderstandings here. Mm-hmm. With the rules, one is that he thinks maybe that he, the opponent can activate the shrine in the while he's declaring his attackers, right? Which is not possible. Or he says something about um, not using the stack, and I'm wondering if it's one of the classic. Well, now that damage doesn't go on the stack anymore, nothing goes on the stack. Mm, you, that's, yeah. you encounter that every once in a while. 
Right. So to clarify then, both of the abilities, the, the, the ability of you, you casting Twitch and also him using the Zectar Shrine Expedition's activated ability, both of those use the stack. Both of them have to resolve after both players pass priority without adding stuff to the stack. And all of this in order for that expedition to be able – that expedition's token <coughs> to be able to attack uh, you needs to happen in the beginning of combat. If he's already gone to declaring attackers, then he needs to decide as a first part in that step what's attacking and who is it attacking or what's it attacking if you have a planeswalker out, per se. Um, that's how you'd go about that. So it's pretty straightforward there. But now let's, let's talk a little bit about why we can't answer this in a tournament. Well, let's first of all point out that at a regular Ariel tournament, so a Friday Night Magic or something, help, you can help the guy. You can explain the phases of combat and how it works and how you can do things. It, FNMs and other regular RL tournaments are partly about education. So we want to just be able to teach the you know, person who's got this question how things work, because that'll just improve his play in the future. Mm-hmm. And pre- honestly, it'll prepare him for the next level of tournaments. It could be out of, an out-of-order sequencing issue, too, that maybe the opponent is saying something like, I'll attack with this 2-2, two, two, this 3-3, three, three, and I'll crack my shrine and attack with the 7 uh, Just like sure. activating his Mutavault yeah. and attacking sure. that. And obviously so by saying that. that, it might make the opponent think that he can't respond. Right, right. Now, in, in a competitive or professional tournament, we expect the players to have fairly solid knowledge of the rules. And among those things are how the phases of combat work, or steps of combat work, and how abilities are announced and when you have priority and when these things happen. And not, you know, magic players don't always know the details of the rules. Back in Odyssey Block Limited, I had a high-profile professional ask me about a werebearer that was going to receive lethal damage or two points of damage, but mm. it would put the seventh card in his graveyard. Yeah. And he wanted to know if the werebearer would survive before he did it, because obviously if the werebearer doesn't survive, it's a pretty bad player. And my answer to him was, uh, at the time, state-based effects Mm -hmm. are checked uh, when a player would gain priority. Because he's at a professional event. We are not there to Mm -hmm. help them figure out how to play the game. We are there to enforce the rules and make sure they do it correctly, not to help him strategically decide, well, am I making the optimal play by playing the spell? The answer to, am I making the optimal play by playing the spell is... No idea. Play the spell. We'll find out. <laughs> um, yeah, the werebear would have survived, and I think in the end, it's not. He, it's not so out out of uh, the scope of reason that he didn't get that because we get that with Tarmogoyf all the time yeah, now. Absolutely, <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely. And in fact, he went back to the table and did not play the spell. Oh, um, so. so your answer, while correct, gave him a different impression, or or just did not help him enough that he was comfortable doing mm-hmm. it. Um, right. Hard to say. Mm-hmm. But the point is that this is a pro tour. Yeah, the judge should not be telling him. Yeah, you can do that, or if you want, you can do better <laughs> yeah, by doing this. No, that is, at this point, that's not the judge's role. The judge is there yeah. to ensure the correct play of the game, not the optimal play of the game. Okay, okay. Well, and this is getting into the the difference again between the F and M's mm-hmm. and the and the the higher REL mm-hmm. events. Uh, we did have a listener send in a couple questions um, that are more about. It sounds like maybe I don't want to call it a, a, a listener. You know, this when he's trying to get his rules advisor test passed, and he's very interested in actually becoming a judge. Excellent. So that means that he cares about the rules. So when there are rules issues that come up in, um, you know, in regular RL events, he's basically loath to let his opponents take things back, and he wants to know where's the line where basically how do I do this without without coming across as a jerk? 
because you know in a two-headed giant pre-release match, you know, I, there's a lot going on there. And you know, if if we're going through a bunch of action interactions here, and all of a sudden you realize that you know you you're about to because you've dealt damage to me with something, it's going to kill one of my things. You can't back up and say, well, now I'll play Tangle Sap and stop all that damage. Mm-hmm. How can he say, well, no, don't do that because you can't. We've already dealt their damage. I mean, you could play that also. There's there's the one place where you can say, sure, play your Tangle Sap. Well, damage has already happened. You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> that's kind of like that's that's probably the most jerk move you can have. Yeah, and, and that actually gets into some kind of heinous corners because how does anybody know damage has happened if nothing's oh been gosh. written down? And well, and yeah. he's saying, well, I wrote it down, but they haven't written it down oh, yet. Yeah, so you know. then then we then we're into a situation that's where players have different. Yeah, that, then we're into communication issues more oh, than anything right. else. We have two players who have differing views on where the game is actually at. Um, so yeah, I, I would strongly counsel against trying to really pull the rules lawyery stuff because that's usually that's usually doable through creating through confusion in the game state rather than misunderstanding in that sort of situation. Now, obviously, yeah, the question of takebacks at FNM is an interesting one and every person is going to come to their own conclusions about it. Um, to be dead, I mean, to be dead honest, to a certain level you're deci- you're making a conscious decision about how you want to be perceived at FNM. Um, do you want to be the guy who's the winner and but people mm-hmm. aren't, you know, always all that happy with you or do you want to be the guy who's, you know, fun to play with and everything else and FNM supports these things. Um, so having to ask the question, you know, how can I do this without, you know, being a jerk? Well, part of it is you have to decide how much of a jerk you're comfortable being. Right. And we support you being a jerk up to a certain point at FNM and a much higher point at competitive REL. Um, there are things that, for example, I would never do that are perfectly legal at a competitive event, for example. But so, so you have to decide, well, you know, what am I comfortable with? And the simple, the easiest one to do is if, if you're uncomfortable, just, just simply say, I'm not sure you can do that at this point. We should call a judge and find out. Mm. Or just, you know, at, you know, say, I think something's gone wrong here. Let's get a judge involved. Well, what if you are the judge? Given that it's regular and perhaps you're playing at your FNM. If, if it's regular and you're playing at FNM and um, I would err on the side of being nice. <laughs> um, yeah, yes, don't don't you, ruin it for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, you can probably, I mean, at, at that point we're reaching the stage where the answer to how can I not be a jerk is don't be a jerk. Yeah. Um, if, if you want to be a jerk and be nice about it, don't be the judge of the event. <laughs> For for me, the question of takebacks when I'm playing against someone is usually just, have we done anything? If they cast a spell and you know target one of my guys, and we're just kind of looking at it and thinking, and maybe I'm looking at my hand, and they say, "Oh wait, no, I want to target this guy," I'll be like, "Sure, yeah, like do whatever you yeah, want." I mean, like, if, I, if I tap some, we announce a spell and they go, "Wait, no, I want to tap this land instead." Whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I start to, you know, cast some giant growth or something to save them, and then like, oh yeah. well, I yeah. want to switch my target, like obviously not. So right, sure, and that's I mean that's reflected a lot in our sort of out of, out of order sequencing philosophy in the part where you can't do out of order sequencing if it gets you information too soon. Yeah, um, basically, right. it's, it's a good line to draw is when the opponent has reacted, or uh, then that's a reasonable line to say. Yeah, at that point you. You're not being a jerk by saying they can't do it. Okay. Well, Andrew here has a second question, a mm-hmm. follow-up. Um, you talked a little bit more about FNM. In dealing with players that are going to their first FNM, mm. 
Mm. Um, and say it's a draft, or is the or it, they've been going FNM playing standard, and now they decide, well, we'll run FNM as draft this week, mm-hmm. and this person's never drafted before. How do you bring that player into drafting without giving them all sorts of outside assistance? Yeah, it, it, it's a challenge. And in fact, during the, the draft, or well, not necessarily during the draft, and saying, oh, you should pick this over this, but more say in the deck construction portion after mm-hmm. the fact. Where somebody's saying, well, you know, I only drafted 10 creatures, mm-hmm. you know, or I only, you know, or my, I have four different colors here. I don't understand what I should be playing. I mean, at that point, they've, they've done their draft. They kind of got the concept of picking and passing and going mm-hmm. through the motions there. But they've drafted a terrible deck. And there's probably a way that you can kind of steer them where it's like, well, they're not going to have the worst night of their life. And they'll probably come back and draft some other time and improve. Or they're just going to throw up their hands and say, this is the worst format ever. I'm going to stick with my standard. I'm never going to do this again. So, so here's some good news. The first thing is that a player's first draft, they're going to owe three. They're going to have a horrible deck. And they're still going to have an awesome time. Because mm-hmm. most players are just so excited to be like looking at magic cards. and you know, it's, right. it, it's very hard to tell. I mean, I've been playing magic for, oh, dear God, 17 and a half years or something now. You know, I'm very jaded about cracking packs. I'll be like, crack. (laughs) There's the card I want, slap, pass. This guy is like, oh my God, I'm cracking a pack. Oh my God, look at these cards. I haven't seen these cards. They're going to be super duper excited. I still get excited. Well, there's 24 packs at the table being open all at the same time. Oh my God, there's all these cards. So so, so first of all, they're going to have a good time anyway. And in fact... I strongly encourage, if you have multiple people who are doing this, um, who are, like, really new to the game in an FNM, um, sealed is a really good idea in that situation. Especially now with, like, the continuous construction rules and things. Sealed works really, really well to introduce players to the game while maintaining that, oh, my God, we're opening hundreds of packs excitement. Right. Um, so I, I strongly recommend sealed for if there's a big player, big set of new players. And it's a good way to introduce it's folks. A, it's a great way to introduce players. Um the continuous construction rules make a huge difference here. And in fact, the continuous construction rules really arose from this local FNM that we used to have at match play here. Um, mm-hmm. It used to be sealed. And after round one, everybody would help everybody else build their decks. You know, I just beat my round one opponent. Hey, you know, I saw you were playing. That's not, that's a really bad card. You should probably, you know, mm-hmm. and they'd help out or, you know, two friends would be like, Oh my God, look, I pulled this card. Is this card good? You know, and then their friend would be like, Oh my God, you pulled that card. And I'm like, we can't penalize for that. They're having a blast and it's not hurting the tournament. And so that's where we, we basically said, you know, it is silly to make people building your decks and cracking packing. Is the most exciting part of a limited event. And we're telling them they have to be absolutely silent and, you know... Right. tour level quiet. Know, don't right. do, do not do anything here. It's like, that is just wrong. The whole point of magic is magic is fun. And so let's all have fun while we're building our decks. And nobody who's going to regular REL is going to be uber competitive to the point where they're like, well, you know, and, and if they are, we give the TO the option to prevent continuous construction by using deck lists. Mm-hmm. I'll bet you no T.O. uses deck lists for F&M. Oh, I would... Uh, limited. We, we would not get our eight players no, if we no, nobody, to use... Nobody wants, because everybody wants to go in and crack the packs and wave things around and say, oh my god, this is so fun, we're doing all this stuff. So that, that's the simple answer, is after round one, now it's all continuous construction and nobody's keeping deck lists. Is, you say the guy, and I did this last night, I played a guy in the third round, he had he played Collar of Gales on turn one, I'm like, well, we have something to talk about afterwards. <laughs> I know, because you know, he, he asked, he said, hey, you know, can you tell me what I'm doing wrong afterwards? And the goal of an FNM is to get players, is first of all, is to excite players, mm-hmm. which this does, it makes them super happy, and is to prepare them for, you know, their tournament future. Right. And the best way to, the best way to improve somebody's draft 
is to show them what they did wrong or say, you know, hey, I saw you pass me that car. You know, I, I, Matt Marsh Casualties went fourth at our table last night. Wow. Um, you, okay. know, you, you can say to the guy. Is that card good? <laughs> nah, not in my deck. I was, I was you know, white green. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's that's a really awesome explanation, I think, of, of you know not being such a hard ass as a judge and really you know drawing the line, especially when it comes to F and M. Yeah, F and Ms you know, are fun. F&M's the, that's the whole purpose of it. Okay. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit now. We've answered most of the question questions we had. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our listeners also sent in questions that we should be asking in the podcast, so other people can answer them and get draft sets for it. Or get other other things for yeah, it. Yeah, we'll, got a lot of that, but we'll we'll deal with that in a minute here. Um, I, I thought we were going to deal with that maybe next episode or something. Well, we have all the questions that came in, okay. so we can pick one of those and ask that, and then have people. But we haven't picked one of them yet, so we need to, no, we need we to work that out. <laughs> but <clears throat> while we have you here, Toby, mm-hmm. wanted to talk a little bit more about one of the changes that's happened in the world of magic that has affected judges in this sort of awkward tangential way, and that is the reprint policy that. You know, lo and behold, they're not pre- reprinting a foil mock sapphire anytime soon. Do eye rolls come across on radio? Uh, you, you know, they they, they don't. Oh. Um, but but now that you stated it, uh, we'll yeah. leave that in. Right. You have to make the eye roll sound. <sighs> oh, that's a good one. That's I have. Okay, reprint yes. policy. Sure. I don't. I have no inside information about the reprint policy. So um, mm-hmm. if that's your hope, you're going to be disappointed. They don't even talk to L fives about this. What? No, no. no. I, I actually was quite as surprised as anybody else. Um. So. The reprint policy is, I mean, it, it, I suspect Wizards went in and said, well, what is the value to the company of abandoning the reprint list, the reserve list, versus what is the detriment of effectively breaking our promise that we probably now regret? And after the 17 levels of bureaucracy were consulted, the answer came back where we prefer to keep our promise rather than try to make a little more money here. The problem is that well, a bunch of things have happened since. Um, lots of people who are like, oh, my God, this will end everything. You know, right. Legacy, legacy is doomed, et cetera, et cetera. Legacy is far from doomed. Legacy just got a 2,200-person Grand Prix. They were they were making these Legacy is doomed predictions two years ago, and they, those look kind of silly now. But the bottom line is it's not as though the existence of the reserve list or the lack thereof meant they were going to print duels. From a, from a design standpoint, duels are a disaster because once you've done duels – Everything what else do you do works. next? <laughs> I mean, you're just done. And right, the color pie has so, no meaning anymore. The color, well, thing that the color pie has no meaning. There's no design space left because now, now you've established because every every land since the duels mm-hmm. has ha- has been weaker than the duels because the duels are too good. Yeah, they had and to in order in, to make they had to invent they extended and standard. Yeah, they basically had to, to kick duels out of every format to make any other lands relevant. Uh, there's no reason to play with most of these other. You know, Coastal Tower was an irrelevant land while duels were in the format. So if they if, still is, no, still is. That was not, you know, but you know this, the Sejiri Refuge or whatever the new one is, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty decently balanced. It's an interestingly designed land. You have to ask, is this a land I would want in my deck? Mm-hmm. If you put the duels back in, there's no longer any design space for land. So I don't believe that there would have been a mass rush to print the duels anyway. Um, so that, that, I mean, and you know, legacy is doing pretty darn well without the help. And it's not, it's not like, you know, we suddenly have wizards changing policies on us. It's merely they said, we're staying the course on the old policy. Right. Um, a bunch of people got very excited when they pulled Ben Blyweiss and uh, Stephen Menendian in because they figured that was clearly the sign of the end of the reserve list. But 
those were probably the two most motivated people in the world to end the reserve list for their own particular oh, reasons. Absolutely. They've um, got great financial interests. They've got incredible <laughs> interests in ending the reserve list. And I'm sure they had great points. I'm sure Wizards listened mm-hmm. to them. And I'm sure that Wizards had a really hard decision to make there. But fundamentally, it didn't change anything. They were, I don't think that ditching the reserve list would have suddenly produced, more, you know, produced dual lands. And really, nobody, as far as I can tell, is yelling for Yare to be reprinted. Um, I, I actually, don't even know what that is. It's a it's the one yeah from it's a white one that has uh, it, it's it's like a bad blocking berserk. I think that's the ah now Toby is running oh to his God, wall. He's here. got a bookcase he's, with yeah he's got apparently a bookcase every of binders and no, no, complete sets in here. Set, so I'm not sure where it is at this point. Anyway, the point so, stands. Well, actually, it, the interesting thing was that. Uh, and Aaron Forsyth and Mero's uh, tweets, it sounded like they were both in favor of ending the reserve list. Sure, but, they, they but, have, the, but the decision came from somewhere different or higher up. Sure, and Mer- but Mero and Aaron both have generally incentive to end the reserve list. Um, it enables them to do interesting reprints in a set that you know they might not otherwise have been able to do. I have Yari here now. Oh, there's Yari. Oh, because I cracked my station up Mirage. Well, so it's uh, it's a two and one white instance. It says target defending player, target creature defending player controls gets plus three plus zero oh until end of turn. That creature may be assigned to block up to three creatures this turn. All blocks must be legal, which is sure. sounds a little bit under. And so you're saying that this nobody, will nobody, never see print. That again. will never see print again. And strangely, the nobody end, cares. The end of I was magic. looking forward to it at Grand Prix Amsterdam, though. Yeah, oh, no, no, I didn't pro tour Amsterdam. <laughs> right and right, yeah. magic foil. No, oh, no chance of that. Yes. No, well, I think it was no. a rare to begin with. So wasn't uh, it a rare? Let's see. It says it was a rare. Yes, yes it was a rare. Because How is that a rare? There are only rares on the on the revised. I mean, right. you could open Lion's Eye Diamond or this. Yes, and and I mean the place where the reserve, the change in the reserve it doesn't actually affect anything. We the day before they made this announcement, the day after this announcement, the only thing that changed is that they basically said we're no longer going to print judge promos as a reserve list. Mm-hmm. And so if anybody's got to be upset, it's going to be the judges. The judges are like whatever. Well, what are you what are you most disappointed that you're not going to see so in the future? I actually did some research on this and. Sliver Queen is like the number one with a bullet card that's on the reserve list that a lot of judges were really hoping to get reprinted. Mainly um, because of EDH, right? Just because it's such a... Sliver Queen. It's like it's Sliver Queen. Isn't it like a $25 <laughs> Chimmy's, card? Yeah, Timmy's per- everywhere. Loves... I mean, EDH is a great format. I'm, you know, big fan. And it's a little bit of a driver for judge foils, but it's the, the casual player market is what really drives the judge foils because you look at the really successful ones they're not necessarily EDH cards um, Exalted Angel mm-hmm. possibly the most successful one ever very beautiful art yes. very beautiful art very awesome card has no EDH impact right, right. Um, it, it, um, a, a, the most successful judge foils are actually ones that are targeted to the casual market There's some some of the legacy support ones are good so like Natural Order and Dreadnought I'm pretty excited about but, like, last year's most successful judge foil was Maze of Ith. And that's just because every casual player wants one. And if they can get the really cool pimped-out one with the new art and everything else, then it's a huge hit. There but, are some fans out there of the brain art, or whatever that is. Oh, sure, the yeah, original. It's, yeah, the Maze of Colon. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but there really were only about six cards on the re- reserve list that could have realistically been printed as judge foils and will no longer be reprinted as judge foils. So it's not really that huge an impact. Um, even there. So that's the five Moxes and Black yeah, Lotus, and right? Black Lotus, clearly. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you know, you're never going to see Tolarian Academy in a foil, which is kind of a shame. 
Yeah, yeah. The best you can get is you know the Japanese. Eric Levine is probably very disappointed by that's that. That's right. He can't ruin any of the foil to that's land. True. That won't ever <laughs> oh, be man, printed. Yeah. But, but honestly, the reserve, this reserve list is is kind of internet echo chamber. Um, people need something to get excited about before Eldrazi, Rise of the Eldrazi previews really start in earnest. So that happened to be the thing that got the internet's flowing for a couple of days. Yeah. yeah. One of the weird byproducts of this policy now is that for some reason people think that there's going to be a dual, dual snowlands in the future. <laughs> <laughs> like because the reserve it's list says that you can change the, the type or the super type or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the people who really, really want to see these reprints are kind of missing a couple of important points. One is that dual snowlands that would kill legacy. I think. Well, it's not that it would kill legacy, but but it would not actually address any issues because you would still need the original duels to be competitive because now everybody was running four of the dual snow and four of the original one. Right. So right. It, it, unless you have really weird text which says you can't play this in a deck with underground sea or whatever, it's useless <laughs> as a replacement. It's not a replacement. At which point everybody's like. Oh, Legacy's going to die because you still need the original. So that, that doesn't solve anything. The secondary problem is that Legacy is an inaccessible format. Well, what defines inaccessible? You know, by definition, do all the cards need to be $5? Do they need to be $10? Do they need to be 20 And your answer, the answer from everybody will be pretty much what they can afford. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that, that pretty much destroys the system of rarity. Um, and yeah, yeah, you can you, if you want to make the principled argument that magic is suffering because of rarity, and there, goodness knows there's been plenty of internet debate about that, especially now they have mythic rares, you can make that argument. But there's not, I mean, if you're willing to accept rarity, then you have to accept scarcity, and you have to accept that some cards are going to be worth more than others. And, you know, where that price point border is, is... That's where the, the, there's no real way to say that. You know, is it okay if everything's thirty dollars? Is it okay if everything's fifty dollars? And at some point, there's going to be some card that is rarer than everything else that is needed, and that card is going to become super expensive regardless. Mm-hmm. So unless you're willing to basically reprint everything in near infinite quantities for no money, you're going to have scarcity, and right. so it's not like you can do a lot about that. Right. People will complain no matter what. And I mean, I mean, when Affinity was the best deck, that was one of the cheapest best decks mm-hmm. of all time, and people complained yeah, about well, that. Right. And then well, now I mean, there's Baneslayer, like, oh, I don't want to buy a $50 card for my deck. Right. Well, and I mean, Jund, again, is yeah. like a pretty cheap competitive deck, but, you know, but the good, the about good that. news is that if you look at the top eight decks from Madrid, how many dual lands were they running on average? Mm, I'd have to look. I believe the maximum in any deck was six. Which really isn't that many. It's that's really that's that many. I mean, some people have brought up the question, is that due, you know, was that the optimum list, or were they un- unable to get dual land? If they made if the you survive 2,200 <laughs> players, it was probably a pretty optimal list. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the best list, best list in the room. I mean, it's... Or regardless, yeah. it's well, that's, that's being result-oriented. It, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to argue that they weren't competitive by not having... <laughs> sure, but dual I mean... Lands. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we have uh, – I want to change gears a little mm-hmm. bit here because we've gone off uh, quite a bit on the reprint list. And that's – the reserve list is an important policy that, that Wizards has. But more, more going back to, to judging a little bit, we have a lot of our listeners that are interested in becoming judges or rules advisors or they're, they're, you know, they've been to a pre-release and they said, wow, you know, I can help run this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as of level five, someone who's been in the program for, for quite some time, mm-hmm. um, basically, you know, in the program since before there was a program. No, per se. no, no. Well, I started mm-hmm. judging in 
uh, with the release of Urza's Legacy. Okay, let's. That's still before a lot of our listeners, I think, were, sure. were playing. Maybe before but, some but of them there were was born. there were many years Whoa. before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have a policy. Well, not a policy, but I have a mission in life, which is to not lose to people who were not born when I started playing Magic, uh-huh. and it's getting harder and harder every year. <laughs> Only one has done it so far. <laughs> well, what do you, what advice do you have some, for somebody who's starting out as a judge who wants to get into the get into the game and get into the game as a judge, mm-hmm. uh, learn more about the rules and, and improve their game. How do they, wh- where do you suggest they go and, and what sort of advice do you have from the, the sage level that you are? So here's what you do. You go online to the judge center, which is judge.wizards.com and you take the rules advisor test. Mm-hmm. And then when you, and their practice tests to help you do that. Once you pass the rules advisor test, go and find a big event, go find a pre-release of the best, but, um, PTQs work fine, or even you know just your local FNMs where you know that there's a judge floating around. Or if you have a you know you, you know you're friendly with a, a guy who's a judge at the local store, or you know who's going to show up at some event, and throw your, throw yourself at him. And I apologize to all the level threes out there who are going. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> level two is also level we just, awesome, we just yes. did a collective shake of our head. Yes, no, thing. seriously. I mean, the best way to learn is to find a judge you really like and respect and pick their brain. Um, Ask them to help you out. Ask them to show you the ropes. Um, you know, understand early on that you're going to have to do lots of scut work. And frankly, when you make level five, you end up doing lots of scut work. <laughs> I've been known to push in a few chairs here and there. Mm-hmm. But um, find a judge you really respect or really admire and ask to work with them. And frankly, if they're a judge you really respect and really admire, they're going to be thrilled to work with you. Good. A quick note on the rules advisor exam is that it does, if you do not pass it, then there is a certain window where the exam is uh, yeah. shut off for it's very weeks long. or so. Yeah. It's, it's but it gets longer every time you don't pass. So yeah. if you don't pass the first time, study up for the second. Now, the reason I say go and pass your rules advisor test first is that it just shows that judge that you're going to go throw yourself at. The, you, mm-hmm. you actually are serious about this. And you spend some time of your own on you know, They're more than happy to help you out, but it just reassures them that, yeah, you, you're serious about this and you really want to succeed. It, it's one of those, are you going to waste my time questions, mm, sure. basically. Like, if you can pass the rules advisor, that gives us a good indication that, A, you're committed, and, B, you have some knowledge. So right. I, I usually always ask when people come talk to me, so... Well, and you don't need a whole lot of rules knowledge to pass the rules advisor exam. Also, that I mean, part of that is a test of your ability to go find rulings yeah, if you absolutely. need to. Because it's, it's timed, but you right. you have plenty of time to go and hunt down the comprehensive rules and figure out where you need to, which section you need to read. Right, right, because it is an open note exam, it's an open book test. Okay. Well, are there any parting notes that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I want to thank you guys for having me on. Um, I hope this was useful information and. I want to reiterate what we started with is um, there's a lot of misperceptions in, especially in the judges in the program about how policy is done and policy isn't created by me. I just happen to have gotten to a point where I've become a convenient nexus for policy issues to be brought to for a long time. People with policy concerns didn't know what to do. They would just, you know, they could shout them out into the ether or they didn't have somebody who they could go to and say, we need to change this. And that's what's really happened. It isn't that I've gone and started writing policy or anything crazy like that. No, everybody's writing policy and I'm just accumulating it. Mm-hmm. So I've become a focus for that. And one of the goals is something you're going to see coming out over the next few months is we're going to try to extend sort of that philosophy to other portions of the program so that it will become when you want to be involved in something on the program, not necessarily policy, but you know, 
recognitions or your website organization or any of these things, it'll become clear who it is that is sort of the focus for that and who you should talk to. So um, look, look forward to that. I think it's going to be very exciting. Who do I talk and, to to be on the softball team? <laughs> Ingrid. Um, well, she does a lot of stuff. She's very busy. <laughs> you've got a long ways to go to get to the softball team also. If they're playing you know, in, in, in Ingrid's hometown, you've got yeah. quite a drive for practice. Well, pretty close to U.S. Nationals. That's yeah, true. true. U.S. That's Nationals true. were announced this week. Sorry, August 21st August in 21st Minneapolis. Minneapolis. It's interesting because there's a Star City event in Minneapolis the weekend after that. Huh. So for those of you interested in playing or judging, you might want to make a little two-week vacation out of it. But what am I going to do in Minnesota for another week? I don't Get know. By Friday night magic? <laughs> there's one day down. I, I, I suspect that if... You pinged Steve Port. Um, he could arrange for the sh- one of the Misty Mountain shops to have drafts every night. That's probably true. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be quite happy to. How many shops does he have? He's got Misty Mountain and Misty Mountain North. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think one last thing we should have you do um, is that you should pick the question for our listeners to answer to get a prize from us. So we have... If you have one of your own that you think somebody should answer, do, did, we, how many questions did we get? Uh, not not a dozen or so, but we, we well actually we got quite a few questions from from listeners. Uh, if we're out of prize. Right. And, <laughs> well, and and for for a little bit of background here, one of our our previous episodes we asked for, we said, well, if you can give us a question to ask us this question, mm-hmm. then we'll give you prize for that. But here we're actually going to start asking those questions. Okay. So, but if you have one, yeah, let's see what we got. Okay. Let's, we should let, go with let the audience. Pause the recording here while we kind of go over the over those, so we don't ruin them for future episodes. If in case we want to actually, you know, ask those again there. Well, so we've reviewed the, all the questions that came in, and you have one or two favorites that you'd like to pose. Now, re- let's clarify before we uh, go further. Which there's only one question that people need to answer in order to mm-hmm. be eligible for this this contest here, which. Ricky and I will completely subjectively pick the best answer. And so the best one the, wins this. The best answer to this question and wins this. And by and, definition, the one which makes Ricky laugh the and hardest. So, <laughs> and so whichever one he Or which makes Sean cry. Is the winner <laughs> of the previous one? Correct. So okay. so Toby is deciding for us right now the, the winner of the previous contest. And then also, if we use your question in the future here, we'll, we'll credit you there also. And... If we use that as another okay, contest question. So, but the one for this one is... The question for the week. Describe to us the worst mangling of, a, of the magic rules you have seen happen in a tournament. That's by the understanding of somebody oh, or... By someone's understanding of right. the rules. So somebody misinterprets the rules somehow. We want to know how badly that's gone. I'll tell you, when I started playing way back in the day, I thought when a creature hit a player, that it would be sacrificed. So that the creature yeah, it engages in combat with the player. The player slaps it down and takes five damage. <laughs> it made perfect sense. Nice, nice. Well, and for submitting that question, mm-hmm. Parker Hogan here will be getting a draft set of the Alara block that okay. Ricky has so generously decided to give out. And what do we have as prize? Do you think for the person who gives us this worst mangled interpretation of the rules story? Or my Legends rules insert cards. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we can give them? Well, I, I, how many uh, Lara draft sets are, are we giving out? A total of 12, you said. Yeah. Okay, so we'll give one to that person also. Yeah. Send them a draft set as well. Fantastic. Okay. 
Wow, and worst rules mangling. That's. I mean, you always hear. I mean, if you're on message boards, you see the land equals mana misconception. Yeah. yeah. Where someone like I cast dark ritual. Does that mean I go through my library and get three swamps? <laughs> so right, right. Okay. Well, we'll we'll hopefully get some really good stories from our listeners there. Um, there was one other question that came in that was not part of the contest, but you wanted to mention it, I think. Absolutely. We we think that somebody suggested that everybody out there in the internet should um, <laughs> cast the Judge Cast movie. So we want to know who it is that should be playing Ricky and Sean. Right. And that's not going to get you any prizes from us if you who, answer that question. Who's going to play you, Toby? You certified both of us. So if there's like a little backstory moment. That's right. That's right. The the big, you know, the, the, uh, the backstory where, you know, I don't know. We're the, spider the origin. You're the Uncle Ben to this Spider-Man <laughs> Venom thing here. So. so, so the traditional answer to that question has been Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> and I just want to add: do not send in Mike Flores because <laughs> he can't act. That must be it. <laughs> That's right. Well, Make wait. it someone who's actually you know been wait, in a movie you're not Mike Flores the whole time I've been hosting <laughs> the whole time <laughs> and that's Judge Cass and, and Sean Cadenese and Mike Flores and, and I thought you were BDM <laughs> BDM really I don't I don't think I bear any resemblance there um, but well thank you for the compliment how do I do this and not offend BDM <laughs> All right, and I well, oh I want to add today we're recording on Saturday. Happy birthday to several judges today. Uh, Scott Marshall, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Seamus Campbell, and Michael Mills. Okay. So that- Congratulations, Michael. Your promotion path is short. <laughs> but their nine levels ties my own birthday for highest number of levels born on the same day. Is that oh, true? You yeah. actually run the numbers? Well, I, not all the numbers, but based on my <laughs> Facebook friends... Okay. Well, you're you're friends with all the judges, too. Yeah. Yes. And actually, I think on Monday there's a, an eight level day coming up. Mm. It's um, gosh, it's Mark Brown, Merlin Catterall Davis, and two others: Kaya Federovich from Poland. And one more, I can't remember right now. Okay, so if your birthday is on Monday the 29th, and Ricky didn't mention your name, and you're a judge, go send them some sort of grief. Um. In the meantime, <laughs> no grief. we want to take the time here and, and thank you for uh, hosting us here, Toby. My pleasure. Very much appreciate it. This is recorded in Toby's basement because um, we were headed down to the Bay Area. He calls it the man cave. The man cave. And indeed, and there's... Can you argue? No, there's amazing stuff on the walls here. You've there's got, original art on the walls. That's right. Magic art. There's a rock band set with a yeah. pull-down screen. Yeah, giant... Couch stuff, sack things, and <laughs> all sorts of cards on the walls. Yeah, with, no, this uh, is this is novels. This is truly an amazing sort of uh, and an escape hatch. An escape hatch. Very nice. Very nice. That's kind of important. In, in, in it's, it's required by law, actually. Yeah, they call this a bedroom, and in order to have um, a bedroom, you have to have okay. two exits. There you go. Yeah. So what it is is like a window and then a ladder up to his yard, I guess. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well. We want to thank also all of you for listening to us. Give them the email. Oh, yeah, the whole email <laughs> thing. Right, right, right. If you well, want if to you enter have... this contest. Oh, God, how do you do that? <laughs> Just yell back at your computer. <laughs> no. Um, 
Our email is judgecast at gmail.com, and you can also reach us on Facebook. Uh, we'll take submissions there as well. Be checking the Facebook fan page, etc. But judgecast at gmail.com is our preferred method. Uh, that will hopefully also be in the show notes. So, <clears throat> okay, I've got to cut out that clearing of the throat thing. With that, thanks again for listening. Signing off, this is Sean Cananese. I keep it fair. And Ricky Hayashi, I keep it fun. And Toby Elliott, I make their lives miserable. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening.